It's so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, Much to be thankful for, agreed? There's a cool breeze. We're alive today. Christ is risen and he is king and we're here to worship him. So uh, I'm Pastor Matt Tebow filling in for Scott Artavanis while he's away and it's my joy to bring the word to you this morning. As we do that, I want us to consider the fact that no one ever wasted their life on purpose. No one ever woke up one morning and said, hmm, what should... I know, I will waste my life. (laughs) No young person ever aspired to a life of insignificance, and no adult ever said, I think I'll spend my last 30 years in a worse off way than my first, right? This is just contrary to our nature. We don't do this. On the contrary, though, many have looked back on their lives with regret, with remorse, many have said, oh, I wish I would have known. I wish someone would have told me. Many have looked back on wasted lives. This morning, I want to spend our time considering what determines a wasted life compared to a life well spent. What what is the bar that determines that, right? What is the scale and whose bar is it anyways that determines this standard of success? Friends, I believe that it is a biblical statement, a biblical concept that there will be some on that day who are in Christ, who will stand before the Lord and experience an element of loss. Even born-again Christians will experience an aspect of regret. Sure, the blood of Jesus will cover all sin, and sure, for eternity we will celebrate and enjoy him. But on the judgment day, at the Bema judgment seat of Christ, many will experience the feeling of a wasted life. It's because of this that this morning I want to spend our time looking at this, and my hope is that this would not just be another sermon, not just another to-do list item for you, or another priority, but really what I'm after this morning is a deep-rooted conviction, something that is deep within us, and it pertains to the concept of our mission, our mission as a church, but also as individuals. I'd be lying if I said that I don't want uh, holistic change really coming out of this. People really uh, awaken with a new zeal and vigor to go serve the Lord in this mission. So what is this mission? What, What am I speaking of when I talk about not wasting a life, but instead living it on purpose? Well, here's the statement. I want to contend with you this morning that the mission of the Christian life is to make disciples and that this mission will be evaluated based on faithfulness before the Lord one day. So our mission is to make disciples, and this mission will be evaluated before God in judgment one day. How do we keep from wasting our lives? Well, it's, it's that we maintain focus on this mission. So I want to I consider two points this morning. First, I want to show us what that mission is that we're all called to. And then secondly, I want to look at the measurement of success or wastefulness regarding this mission. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, if you'd meet me there. Matthew chapter 28, the first book of our New Testaments. And I just want to say that what we're going to see here this morning is not an optional command. This is not pragmatic. It's not a church growth strategy. No, instead, this is a mandate for every Christian from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I know that many of you are going to be familiar with this. This is not going to be new. However, I'll remind you, Israel in the ancient days would memorize the entire Torah, many of them, word for word, and they still didn't get it right. So a little bit of repetition won't be bad for us. I want to eventually get to significance. Matthew chapter 28, this will be our first text. Look with me at verse 18. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, I'm eventually going to draw out a few points here. This is a rich text, a wonderful text called the Great Commission. But the first thing I want to show you is that there's really only one command. In three verses, there's actually only one command, and maybe you know it, but look back at your Bible. The command is in verse 19, and it is to make disciples, to make disciples. Thus, within this primary mission, right, within our personal mission statement, the command is not first go, it's not baptize or teach, it is to make disciples. And it's no coincidence, friends, that Jesus uses the same word for his own mission that he gave us as our mission, right? Well, who did he call to himself? The 12 disciples, right? And he made many other disciples. In Luke chapter 10, there were 70 And in addition, more beyond that. And so Jesus made followers of him. And in the same way, he then calls us to go and make followers of him. We are called to make disciples of Jesus. Now, we might ask the question, though, how do you do this? Jesus, you were were the man at this. You were the best, right? How are we supposed to do this same thing? Well, he really gives us three uh, modifications of that command, three ways to do it. And I want to show you those. Look back at the text. And it begins in verse 19 with the word go. The first aspect I want to draw from this then is that disciple making, if we can use that term, disciple making requires intentionality. It requires intentionality. This word go here is actually a modification of the word make disciples. Some have said that it carries the same force of the command, which means that we actually do need to go out. Others have said it's as you are going. In any case, both ways, the point is is that we must be intentional. In other words, if you and I are to make disciples, as the Lord Jesus who sits in heaven is commanding us to do, we must focus intentionally on this mission. In other words, Jesus did not say, just sit and wait and discipleship will come your way. Be passive and you will make disciples. No, no, no. He says actually first emphatically, you must go. You must go. There must be an activeness and an intentionality to our disciple-making mission. Now, from there, he goes on and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then he says, baptizing them. Baptizing them. So the second aspect of our disciple-making mission is that it must involve evangelism. Evangelism, right? What is the word evangelism? Well, it comes from the original word, which meant gospel proclamation. So to evangelize is to share the gospel with others. Now, you might get hung up in verse 19 on this word baptize. It simply means immerse. It's just a transliteration that was never translated presumably for political reasons, but it just means to immerse. 
And so does he have water baptism in mind? Well, maybe, but more likely, he actually has a spiritual baptism into Christ in mind, right? Maybe you know Romans chapter six, where Paul himself says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Friends at Grace Church, there is a lost and dying world around us. I think about my own life when I was 18 years old, living for my own glory, chasing the American dream, wanting to build success and money and fame and reputation. And someone brought the gospel to me. And in a night, walking into a Bible study, I was born again. I walked in an unbeliever and I was radically transformed by the power of the gospel. I was placed into Christ. This is our great commission. This is what God has called us to. If we want to be sure that we don't waste our lives, we must take seriously this command to make disciples by baptizing them into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Guys, I think a simple test is this. Do we have a heart for evangelism, right? Do we have this same heart to see people placed into Christ? If not, this is a matter of prayer. Simply to confess this to God and say, God, give me a heart for evangelism. I can't think of anything better to spend our time, our money, our mind space towards than this mission of seeing the lost saved. And this falls under this banner of go therefore and make disciples. So disciple making first involves intentionality. Second, it involves evangelism. But look back at the text. There's a third aspect of this disciple making mission. Verse 20, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you or teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So a necessary third component is teaching or instruction. And this is where we'll talk about the word discipleship. First of all, I want to ask the question, who is called to teach in the church? Who is called to uh, teach the word of God to another in the church? And there's really two ways to think about that. On the one hand, James 3.1, listen to this, says, not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because you will incur a stricter judgment. So God does narrow the funnel for just a few who are gifted and who are called, who are qualified to publicly teach the word. On the other hand, isn't it true that every Christian is called to teach another in one way or another? How do we do the one another's without teaching? How do we disciple and make disciples without teaching? How are women to teach the younger women and men to teach the younger? We all must teach, right? So there's this balance of not all should teach from a pulpit, and yet all should invest in people. And maybe that's our focus, right? When we think about our own role in, in ministry and our own mission, I would maybe put it this way. Don't think pulpit-centered, but think people-centered. Think people-centered. We should all be investing in people. Now, here's what's amazing. I'm going to call this discipleship. Here's what's amazing about this, guys. This can look so many different ways. I've had so many fun discipleship moments on a trail run in the backwoods in Montana. So many great moments sitting at In-N-Out or wherever it may be, just talking with a guy, and then all of a sudden, it becomes an intentional discipling moment, right? Sitting in a pickup, driving somewhere with even some of you here who have discipled me in an hour or two. Discipleship can be one-on-one, it can be small group, it can be on the patio after church. It can take so many different forms. 
And thus, I again want to say the amount of people that you're teaching at one point is not what's in view, but it's your heart for people. Your heart for people. So this is uh, the third aspect. It is teaching. Now look again at verse 20. So again, our main command is make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Well, we've got to be going, right? We've got to have our head up and be intentional, but we also must be seeking to place them into Christ to win people to the mission of the Lord Jesus, which is submission to him. And then thirdly, we're teaching, but look what he says you are to teach. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we might ask, well, well Lord, what does that look like? I mean, I don't even know all that you've commanded me yet. I don't have it down. Well, Jesus uses the word all. He says, teaching all that I have commanded you. I think this is helpful when Paul says that he proclaimed the whole counsel of God, right? The whole counsel of God. What this means is that until an individual knows all the Bible and perfectly has taken in all the Bible and has perfectly fleshed out in life all the Bible, guess what, friends? There's still need for discipleship. There's still need for us to be on mission, even toward one another. Until we have all that Jesus has commanded us down, like the back of our hand, and we're living it out with a humble heart in reverence to God, until that happens, there's still work to be done. And so we must command or teach all that he has commanded us. And and the last thing I want to draw out here is notice that what Jesus is after is obedience, right? He's after obedience. He's actually after a heart disposition that is willing to surrender all to Jesus. Now, guys, this is just, again, don't lose focus here. We're talking about our mission. And all of us are in process. We all need help growing in this. But at the same time, what a joy to come alongside someone just younger than you in the faith and help them to see the sweetness of obedience to Christ, to help them to see the joy of submission. It's no different than children, right? Raising our kids, they are going to be blessed and happier when they listen to mommy and daddy. In the same way, it's our duty really to take forth this good news and help Christians even to come under the lordship of Christ. This is done through teaching, but not just teaching in a formal setting. This is done through teaching through your life, (laughs) teaching through your example, right? Part of, I think, this third aspect of our disciple-making mission is that teaching actually comes through the lectern of life, through doing things together, through working hard together, and then turning that toward a spiritual direction. And this is why I, I become passionate about the word discipleship or to disciple. To disciple means to follow. And the best way to help someone to follow is not just to say, well, here's how you follow. You need to go right and then left and then jump over that and duck. No, no, no. Hey, follow me as what? As I follow Christ. Discipleship and this teaching element requires instruction, but oh, how it also inquires our own life's testimony. Wasn't it Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Right? There's a a life-on-life element here of discipleship where there should be laughter and fun, and at the same time, discipleship involves teaching them or walking alongside of them with how to endure suffering and loss and sorrow. We're talking about holistic discipleship here. And lastly, I'm just reminded here that within this, Jesus called his men to listen to him as he taught. Uh, What he called them to really was to come and be with him. Come and be with me. 
So this is going to be costly. This is going to uh, take some time, right? It's going to involve our investment and not just preparing a script and speaking it, but also living with people. And yet, oh, how worth it it is. Guys, I just want to share again from my own life, I am really a product of discipleship. Men intentionally investing in me, maybe seven or eight different men throughout my time in Christ, and, and every one of them has looked different. But oh, I am so thankful for each one. And now because of that, it's ingrained in my own DNA to want to invest in others, to want to spend time helping others to follow Jesus better. Really, we can boil this down to helping others to follow Jesus better. This is the disciple-making mandate. And it's exhilarating. It's fun, yet it's also hard and challenging. And yet this is what the Lord Jesus calls us to be a part of. So this is Matthew 28. This is what I believe is our mission. If we want to be sure that we're not wasting our lives, uh, we're not going to go wrong by focusing on these three verses. Go therefore and make disciples. Now for the rest of our time though, I want us to turn to a second passage. You can turn in your Bibles to the right a few books to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 3. Really, I would say since I've been in vocational ministry, this has been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to see the measure of our success or how it's going to be evaluated. And just a little context, the Corinthian church uh, had kind of jacked everything up, right? They were not doing well spiritually. In fact, some have titled this book a spiritual spanking, all right? And, and one of the things they had messed up is how to view leadership, how to view our own influence in others' lives and how we view our leaders. They were worshiping uh, man rather than God. They were exalting leaders too high. And so Paul launches in 1 Corinthians 3 to a section where he's talking about ministry. And just to kind of prove to you that he's talking about ministry, in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 3, he says, what's Apollos? What's Paul? Hey, we're just servants through whom you believed. All right, in verse 6, I planted Apollos water, God gave the growth. Verse 9, we're God's fellow workers, you're God's field, God's building. And so from there, we're going to launch into verse 10. And again, he's focusing our, on our impact in other people's lives. He doesn't have his own soul and own salvation in view here. But look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. We're going to consider these four or five verses here. And I want to draw out three aspects that are going to be true on each one of our judgment days before God. The first aspect of this measure is that we must build on the right foundation. We must build on the right foundation. Did you catch that there in verse 10? Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. But what is that foundation? Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So again, we're talking about our influence in other people. And we might kind of wonder at first, well, well what could compete with this? What would maybe challenge Christ being as the foundation? And the answer is simple. It's man. <laughs> it's man, Right? Think about the Corinthians. What had they done? They had super exalted Paul and Apollos and Peter. And now they were dividing over their human leaders. And in the same way, friends, do we not know of many churches built upon one key leader? 
And when that one key leader goes down, what happens to the entire church? It crumbles. It crumbles. And thus, these words are inspired by God and relevant for today. We must be careful that in our discipleships, that in our relationships, we are constantly pointing people back to Christ. He must be the foundation. And you know when the foundation's off, the whole thing's off. In fact, my wife and I occasionally will watch uh, a show called Fixer Upper, <laughs> Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, and, and whenever they come across a house where the foundation is a little dicey, you can see Chip's face start to go, ah, and Joanna says, yeah, we, ah, because he knows if that foundation is off, everything else is off. It doesn't matter what you're teaching. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Otherwise, all the ministry and events that you have going on in the church, if you've lost your foundation on Christ, the church will crumble. So we must maintain in our relationships a central focus on the Lord Jesus. But second, a second aspect of this evaluation and an application for us is that we must build with the right materials. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Now again, the wood, hay, straw, right? This comparison, this is in reference to our discipleship still, our influence in others. And I just want to point out that just grabbing coffee with someone is not discipleship. Just going fishing with someone is not a spiritual event. Just working on cars or fixing a house, these things are not inherently spiritual. However, at the same time, one-on-one coffee, I mean, there's a reason there's a cliche, right? This is a great avenue for discipleship. Driving in the truck together, fishing together, this can be a great venue for conversation to occur. Fixing a car, working on a house, these life-on-life things can build trust and relationship that can lead to further influence. What's the difference then? What dictates which one of those two scenarios is actually meaningful in God's eyes, is actually uh, successful, if we will, instead of wasteful? Well, here we have this analogy. He compares gold, silver, and precious stones to wood, hay, and stubble, or straw. And once again, as we would expect from God's word, this is a brilliant analogy. I mean, friends, think with me about gold, silver, and precious stones. They're permanent, they're beautiful, they're valuable, and they're hard to find. Now, on the flip side, wood, hay, and straw, or stubble, it's passing, it's temporary, it's ordinary, it's kind of ugly, and it's easy to find. The Lord is, is employing this analogy to help us understand that that's how our ministry is going to be evaluated. Again, the point here is, what are the sort of materials that you are using? Wood, hay, straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones? Now, moving from there to the final aspect of this uh, great passage, our evaluation will not only be assessed on the rightness of the material, on the rightness of the foundation, but also we must build, the third and final point from this passage, with the end in mind. We must build with the end in mind. Look at verse 13 again. It says, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So not only do we have to make sure the foundation's on Christ, and then as we're discipling people, we have to ensure that the sort of things that we're investing into people are things that are going to last. Now, what are those things that are going to last? Well, let's ask this question. Which things are going to live on from this life into eternity? And it was the late, great Howard Hendricks who said, there are two things that are going to pass on. God's word and people's souls. Thus, if you want to make a lasting impact in your life, give yourself to implementing God's word into people's souls. Guys, in the end, this judgment that we're reading about, this fire if anyone's work is burned up, we're talking about a fiery judgment is going to take away everything on this earth except for two, all of our souls and the word of God. Thus, we must disciple as we invest in people. We must spend our time. We must relate with the end in mind. This is the measure that each of us will be accountable for before God. This is the, the bar, if you will, the judgment bar. Yes, we must know the Lord. You must know the Lord. But we must also be accountable for our lives. The parable of the talents sits on my shoulder. Maybe you know it in Matthew chapter 25. There's a master and he owns a vineyard. And he leaves and he entrusts his entire estate to three servants. To one, he entrusts 250,000, right? Five talents of gold. To another, he entrusts $100,000, two talents of gold. And to another, he entrusts 50 talents, or I'm sorry, $50,000, one talent of gold. So 250,000, 100,000, 50,000. And he leaves on a journey and he says, you need to steward my estate. Well, he comes back and you know the story. The guy given five, what has he done? He's produced five more. And the man given two, he's produced two more. And to both of them, he proclaims, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the one, and notice the one, the one in Matthew 25, he didn't waste it, he didn't spend it all, but he buried it and he kept it to himself. And he comes back and he says, if I had wanted that done, I would have invested in the bank. Why did you do this? And eventually his fate was depart from me into outer darkness. Now, what are the talents in that passage? I believe they are opportunities. They're opportunities to glorify God and to invest in others. Everything from our, the country in which we live to our intellectual ability, to our language, to the fact that we have the Bible, the word of God, we've got commentaries and great pastors who will teach us nationwide on podcasts and video. Guys, we have so much abundance in spiritual resource. I have to believe, I have to believe that every one of us is a five-talent individual. And so again, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, each one's work will become manifest. It's going to be revealed by fire. We're going to be tested. And it's going to be based on faithfulness with what we've been given. Now, I want to conclude our time this morning by considering just a few elements, a few reasons perhaps, or objections as to why people don't disciple. Why people have uh, chosen not to partake in the disciple-making mission and thus, as a consequence, are slowly but surely drifting toward a wasted life. Why don't people disciple? Well, let's consider a few. Number one, people don't disciple because they don't see the need. 
right? They don't see the need. They look around and they think, oh, everyone's pretty good. I mean, especially in a town like this, people are very moral and clean. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't know if there's much need. My mom's a Christian. My dad's a Christian. My brother's a Christian. My dog's a Christian. My truck's a Christian. Everyone's a Christian, right? So thus they don't disciple. Well, again, let's consider, is this really true? Are people fully worshiping God as they ought? Are they living in full zeal and passion for the glory of Christ? Are they spending daily time in God's word and in prayer? Are they not forsaking the assembling together? Are they actively killing sin in their life and seeking to evangelize and share the gospel with others? Because if not, then certainly there is a need to disciple. And so just because we're perhaps in a, uh, in a very moral and church-based region does not mean there's not a need to disciple. So maybe that's the first reason why people don't disciple. But secondly, perhaps people don't disciple because they've actually never been discipled, right? There's a little bit of a, a element of a chain or a relay race that happens in discipleship. The baton is handed and the next runner runs. But if they've never had the baton handed, then how, how might they know how to run? I mean, I think about what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you've heard from me entrust to faithful men. But perhaps some have not discipled because they've actually never been discipled. Now, granted, even pulpit ministry is discipleship. Teaching is discipleship. But I'm talking about something maybe even more strategic. Now, if that's you here this morning, uh, part of me says I'm sorry. But at the same time, I don't want that to hinder you from beginning to disciple anyways. From beginning to invest and trusting God to teach you how to do that, right? Entrusting yourself to God saying, Lord, I've never invested in someone younger. I've never taken a young man to coffee and opened the word of God, but I'm reliant on you and I'm asking, would you help me? Would you help me? Well, I think there's a third reason why people don't disciple. Thirdly, people don't disciple. People don't disciple because they don't know how. Again, similar to not being taught, they don't know how and they don't know what materials to use. And to this, I would just say simply, guys, discipleship can look so many different ways. Open the gospel of John. Begin memorizing 1 Timothy. Begin going through a book on the gospel or on the Christian life or on whatever else it may be. There are so many ways to do discipleship. Get together and pray for half an hour. Again, we have to have the end in mind, though, that our work is going to be tested. So we want to be coming back to the word of God and toward cultivating faith in the Lord Jesus. Finally, fourth and finally, why people don't disciple? I believe people don't disciple because they don't have time. (laughs) They don't have time. Guys, we live in maybe the busiest era of all of world history. With technology at our fingertips, with cell phones and laptops and TVs and our cars that can drive us from one place to the next, there is very little time to just give to people. And yet, in my mind, I replay a scene. Imagine any of us standing before God. Well, Lord, I know you called me to this disciple-making mission, but I didn't have time. Oh, really? You didn't have time. Uh, What else were you doing? Well, I, I had to work on the business. I had to fix the house. And then, you know, my car, it was always breaking down. And my lawn, well, I had to mow it every week. It had to look great. And of course, we had to then go on vacations and I had to spend time with the family. Oh, that's good, that's good. And Lord, you know, by the end of the day, I'm tired. So I turned on Netflix, but that's not a sin, right? No, no, it's not a sin. So Lord, I just, I didn't have time. Okay, well, did you bring, did you bring those things with you? Uh, 
No, Lord, I, I didn't bring them with me. No, well, well where, why not? Where are they? Well, Lord, uh, they're not eternal, so they're still on earth. Guys, again, the excuse of not having time, I don't think is going to cut it before God. We have to really seriously evaluate our lives. Are we giving ourselves to things that are temporary and material? Or are we giving our time, our affections, our money, our mind space to things that are going to last, things that are eternal? We only have one life to live. We will stand before God and give an account even for our Christian life. And just hear me as a friend and as a brother. My only desire is that this group would continue to run hard after the Lord Jesus, that we would be on this disciple-making mission, and that we would do so with a heart of just wanting to see Christ honored and glorified. Right? We just want to see Christ made whole in people and to see every man and woman here and even out there presented complete in Christ. Agreed? Amen.